turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it is a delight for me to be back standing before you this morning and to be back in the book of 1 Corinthians, the birth of, uh, of John. Took some time away from my typical pulpit preparation, but I was thankful to have Pastor Tommy Higgins and also Brother Jackson last Sunday to be able to uh, fill the pulpit, but it is my joy to stand before you and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As we come to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, we enter into a new section of the book. And this section is primarily driven by the correspondence that was had between Paul and the Corinthian church. We can't be exactly sure what this uh, correspondence looked like because we only have one half of the conversation. But we can infer what the Corinthians said and asked in their letters to Paul based upon the replies that Paul gives in these chapters. Studying the second half of 1 Corinthians is like listening to one end of a phone call. We, we can only hear one side of the conversation. But this correspondence will dictate the topics throughout the rest of the epistle. The second half of 1 Corinthians, it's one of the most practical portions of the Word of God. And I will tell you this morning that the sermon that I'm going to preach to you is not a very flashy and showy sermon. It's a very practical, uh, direct, and straightforward sermon. Chapters 7 through 16 of 1 Corinthians are full of robust doctrine. It's not that they're not doctrinal or theological, but they are not laid out like a doctrinal treaty that develops with each successive chapter, like, say, the book of Romans is laid out. Rather, the second half of 1 Corinthians is organized topically. Topically. And the, the topics are determined by the letters that the Corinthians sent to Paul. 1 Corinthians is a book of practical instruction given from the apostle to a new church plant. I hope you see the relevance in that. That's why over a year ago now I began preaching through this book. And we've taken our breaks here and there, but we have been committed to a verse-by-verse exposition of this book. Uh, notice in verse number 1 the phrase, now concerning. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1? Now concerning. Whenever we see this phrase, we know that Paul is about to address something that the Corinthians wrote to him about. We see another phrase, as touching. That's also very common in this book. And whenever you see that, you know that Paul is about to enter into a new topic uh, and that topic comes from something that the Corinthians had written to him. So let me walk you through that really quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 1. He says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. Then look at verse 25 of chapter 7. He says, Now concerning virgins. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Now as touching things offered unto idols. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 8, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. Uh, chapter 12 in verse 1. Chapter 12 in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. Verse 1 of chapter 16. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. And verse 12 of chapter 16, as touching our brother Apollos. So, 
if you're wondering what the sermon ministry, what the pulpit ministry will look like over the next several months here, there it is. We're going to cover these topics as Paul covers them, verse by verse, line upon line. And so now we come to chapter 7. So turn back to chapter 7. And in this chapter, uh, Paul will address what the Corinthians wrote to him concerning marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 could be considered a topical marriage chapter. It's a longer chapter. It's 40 verses. And that is no doubt because of how important this subject is. But again, it's not laid out as a theological systematic study of marriage. Rather, Paul goes uh, line by line and verse by verse answering different questions or different statements. It's topical. So it's kind of like a frequently asked questions on the subject of marriage. You must understand that marriage is a sacred and divine institution. Before there was ever a church, there was a marriage. Before there was ever a civil government, there was a marriage. God uses marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and His people. And our society and our church will only be as strong as the marriages that comprise them. We live in a day in which marriage is under attack. Fewer and fewer people value the sanctity of marriage. The number of people living together outside of marriage is at an all-time high in America. There's never been a time in our country in which more people have been living together that aren't married. Divorce rates are skyrocketing. The average age of marriage is also higher than ever before. 33 for women and 35 for men. 50% of all first-time marriages end in divorce. 60-something percent of all second marriages end in divorce. You'd think you would learn something, right? Well, 75% of all third marriages end in divorce. Sadly, the worldly views of marriage have seeped into the church, and many Christians no longer have a thoroughly biblical view of marriage. We're not taught anything about marriage. You ask an average church member, tell me some things that the Bible teaches about marriage. They will struggle. They have a lot of ideas of what grandma taught them about marriage and what the world tells them marriage is supposed to be, but what does the Bible say about marriage? Well, if you think that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant, if you're saying, why are we reading this letter that Paul wrote to this church 2,000 years ago, think again. Because the teachings that Paul gives to the Corinthians are the same things that we need to hear today. He will address some of the same pressing issues that we deal with today. We need to understand chapter 7 in light of its context. Good preaching preaches in light of the context of which this text was written. But we must not relegate this chapter to some unique problem in the first century. Nothing is new under the sun. And the Corinthian church had marital problems. And churches today have marital problems. We must understand that, yes, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, but this is God speaking to us. May he be pleased to teach us the important truths about marriage, and may we be diligent to apply them to our lives. Before we jump into the text, let me give you one word of caution. I understand that many of you are not yet married. But do not make the mistake of assuming that this chapter has nothing to say to you. In fact, you might need to listen even more intently than the married folks. Because you have the opportunity of getting things right the first time. 
Ask any believing married couple, and they will tell you that there are biblical truths about marriage that they understand now that they only wish they knew when they first got married. They would love nothing more than to be in your position with what they now know. Paul will also in this chapter directly talk to unmarried people. But even in sections where he's not directly addressing married people, you need to pay attention. Especially if, as all of you are, planning on getting married someday. Learn as much as you can about the biblical teachings of marriage before you're married, and God will bless you for it. You will be glad that you did that. So this morning, we will consider verses 1 through 5. And this sermon is not going to be a full theology of marriage. We're going to consider one of the specific topics. And in verses 1 through 5, what Paul concerns himself with is the topic of intimacy in marriage. Intimacy in marriage. Let's read verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. First thing I want you to see in this text this morning, verse number one, I want you to see the statement. The statement. We already talked about that phrase. Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, and then Paul says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now there are two ways to interpret this phrase, and if you read commentaries or listen to people preach on this verse, they will take it one of two ways. And your interpretation of this phrase will determine how you interpret this whole section of verses 1 through 5. So it's very important that we get this phrase right. The first way to interpret this phrase, some will say that this is part of Paul's teaching. That this is something that Paul is saying. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And they will interpret that phrase, to touch a woman, as to marry a woman. So in other words, Paul is saying, it is good for a man not to even get married. And they will explain this by using verse 26. Look at verse 26 of chapter 7, where he says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. And so they will say that Paul is writing to the Corinthians at a particular period where they are undergoing persecution and hardship, and in that period, it is good for them not to get married. And they argue that Paul begins this chapter on marriage with a statement uh, saying that it's, it is good for men not to marry women. This interpretation makes verses 1 through 5 about whether or not Christians should get married not primarily about intimacy in marriage. So when we, when we look at verse 2, when it says, have your own wife, have your own husband, those who follow that first interpretation, they would read that and they would say, Paul is, is talking about just getting married there. Okay? 
That's one way to interpret this passage. Others will argue that this phrase is not something Paul is saying directly, but rather Paul is quoting the Corinthians. Paul is not personally saying, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but Paul is saying, you have written to me in your letter, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, and now I'm going to respond to that statement. Well, you can probably tell by the title of my sermon which interpretation I believe is most faithful to the text. I believe that Paul here is quoting something that the Corinthians had written to him in a letter. This isn't the first time we've seen him do that, right? We've seen him do that before. When he said, meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Remember uh, just a few sermons ago in this series? So Paul has done this before. And I think that he's doing it again here for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the grammatical structure of verse 1 suggests that Paul is quoting something. Uh, We see that with the King James doesn't employ quotation marks, but it will employ a colon with a capital letter. We find that in verse 1. The ESV just goes ahead and puts quotation marks in there, which uh, personally I think is accurate because even the Greek grammatical structure there seems to indicate that Paul is quoting something. It would also be inconsistent with what Paul teaches in this chapter and elsewhere for him to say that it is not good for man to be married. Paul doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. God said it in the very beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. So why would Paul say that it is good for man not to be married? In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, which is also a Pauline letter, Paul te- teaches that forbidding marriage is a practice of the Antichrist. That he will forbid certain meats, that he will change times and seasons, and that he will forbid marriage. And we could go off on a rabbit trail on what religious institution forbids marriage for men. Okay, But that's not the point of this sermon. And perhaps what is most compelling is that this phrase, to touch a woman, cannot refer merely to entering into the marriage relationship. But rather this phrase refers to physical intimacy. Refers to physical intimacy. And so does every other verse in this section. Verses 1 through 5 all contain a phrase that refer to physical intimacy. Okay. Um, and finally, you must understand that Paul's objective in chapter 7 is not, he is not to prove that it's better to be married or that it's better to be single. That's not what Paul is out to prove. Christians will argue that. Well, it's more spiritual if you get married and you have a family. Well, it's more spiritual if you're celibate and you're single. Well, the truth is, you can be spiritual and be married. You can be unspiritual and be married. You can be spiritual and be single. You can be unspiritual and be single. One is not better than the other. It's about what God has called you to. Okay. Paul is answering topical issues brought up by the Corinthians. He's not seeking to make this big elongated argument on whether or not you should or should not get married. Intimacy in marriage is obviously one of the topics with which the Corinthians addressed him. They wrote to him concerning intimacy. Now, whether the Corinthians brought this up as a question or as a statement uh, is, is unclear to us. However, Paul does kind of indicate in verse 1 that this isn't the, Corinth- the Corinthians aren't asking him here. They're telling him. They're saying, this is what we believe. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, and 
if so, if, if there are members of the Corinthian church that are making that assertion, that's, that's quite interesting, right? Why? Because this is a church with serious issues of sexual immorality. We had a man sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, we had church members visiting temple prostitutes. I mean, this was a, this was a perverted church in many ways. And so we might wonder, well, how could there also be people in this same church who would argue that husbands and wives shouldn't even be intimate with one another? How can these two extremes coexist within the same church? They can coexist because our human natures are prone to jump from extreme to extreme when we do not have the solid foundation of the Bible to balance us out. It's really easy to swing from legalism to licentiousness. It's really easy to go from one extreme to the other. We see it all the time. We see it all the time. Someone who grows up in legalism can sometimes swing so far the other way that they create another pitfall for their lives. You find people that... I could give a number of examples, but you find people that perhaps they grew up in a church or in a family and there were such strict rules on dress... And you could only wear certain things. And men had to wear a certain thing. And women had to wear a certain thing. There were just rules and rules. Well, when they grow up and they get out of that, they swing so far the other way that they forget anything about modesty. They forget anything about holiness and about dressing distinctly. Men should dress like men. Women should dress like women. That just goes completely overboard because they grew up in this context of of unbiblical rules and legalism. So we can see then how that someone in the Corinthian church, imagine you're, you're, you're seeing all of this wickedness. You're seeing a man with his father's wife. You're seeing uh, men visiting temple prostitutes. And then you conclude that in order to avoid all of this gross immorality, we should just forbid intimacy altogether. We just do away with all of it. It's all evil. It's all wicked. We want nothing to do with it. In verse number 1, we see this false statement of the Corinthians. And now Paul will answer it in verse 2, and he will will give his reasoning for his answer. The Corinthians are saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Before we jump into Paul's answer, I want you to notice that throughout this section, Paul uses language that is pure and modest. He does not use crass terms. He does not use innuendos that are borrowed from the culture. Now, I mention this because there is a category of immature and worldly preachers who want to be edgy and who want to be cool, and they use inappropriate and even vulgar language in their sermons to push the envelope for nothing more than shock value. And sadly, that's even becoming more and more popular in Reformed and Calvinistic circles. Such men have no business in the pulpit using locker room verbiage in in God's sacred desk. All of the Word of God, even this present subject, can be and should be addressed before the whole church body, men, women, and children, without sacrificing purity, holiness, and modesty. That is how Paul addresses this subject. That is how we will address this subject. Notice such phrases. In verse 1 he says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. In verse 2 he says that every man should have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. In verse 3 
He uses this phrase, render due benevolence. In verse 4, he talks about having power over your body. In verse 5, he talks about defrauding one another. And he talks about coming together again. Paul is talking about intimacy in marriage, and Paul does not need to use inappropriate language. He does not need to use graphic descriptions to, to convey his point. We don't either. These are all phrases referring to physical intimacy, but none of them are, are immodest. None of them are immodest because God wrote all of his word to be heard by all of his people. All of his people. And I want to say that at the outset, lest anyone have any worries or have any, any kind of uh, concerns about what might be said. So that was the statement. That was the false statement. But secondly, I want you to see the solution. Verse 2, the solution. Paul says, Nevertheless, contrary to what you have said, contrary to what you have written to me, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. And the word have is not referring to entering into marriage, but it's referring to being intimate within marriage. Paul is not saying let every man get married. He's not saying let every woman get married. He's saying that every husband must be intimate with his wife and every wife must be intimate with her husband. And if you don't follow this interpretation, if you follow the first interpretation, then you must see this as Paul commanding every man and woman to get married. He says, let every man, let every woman, right? That's a command, by the way, that he didn't even follow. Because Paul wasn't married. (laughs) The Bible does not command all people to get married without exception. But it does command all married couples to be intimate with one another. Notice Paul gives the reasoning for this command. He says, it is to avoid fornication. To avoid fornication. Fornication was a serious problem in the Corinthian church. Fornication is a very broad term that just refers to all sorts of different kinds of sexual immorality. And the solution to sexual temptations is not visiting the temple prostitutes. The solution to sexual immorality and fornication is not shacking up with your father's wife. That's what Paul is saying this. He's saying, yes, I understand this is a problem in in your church, and you have gone about it the wrong way to solve this problem. Nor is the solution total abstinence. By the way, that's a principle that applies to a lot of temptations. You know, the, the solution to gluttony is not total abstinence from food. Give that a shot. God has designed marriage to be the satisfaction of all sexual desires. That's what we find in the Word of God. So Paul says, let every man have his own wife and only his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband and only her own husband. Any form of sexual expression outside of the marriage covenant is a violation of God's design. But your you need to understand this, especially if you're single. You need to understand this. Your natural God-given desires are not the problem. You can pray for God to take them away, but he won't do it because there's nothing wrong with your natural desires. God said in Genesis 2.18, before the fall, that it was not good for man to be alone. It's, there's nothing wrong with desiring companionship. 
The problem is not our desires. The problem is that sin causes us to seek their fulfillment in ways that God has never intended. Pornography. Recreational dating. Cohabiting with someone who is not your spouse. These are not godly ways to fulfill these desires. Now this, this might be a bit off track, but I, I think that it's helpful, and I think that it's an honest application of, of this subject. Here's the, the problem with the modern practice of recreational dating. And when I say that, what I mean is two single people dating one another, seeing one another, entering into relationships with one another to enjoy all of the privileges of a relationship without being ready for nor desiring any of the responsibilities. I'm going to spend time with this person and I'm going to take them out. I'm going to be alone with them. I'm going to invest in them emotionally with no plan whatsoever necessarily to marry them. We'll just see what happens, right? That's, that's how the world presents it. It's what's, what's normal in the eyes of the world. But the problem is you, you cannot enjoy the privileges without being willing and able to assume the responsibilities. Your desire for companionship is not God telling you to go out and find a girlfriend or go out and find a boyfriend if you're not ready for that. Your desire is God calling you to prepare, to prepare yourself, to make sure that you are ready mentally, emotionally, physically, and in every way. Prepare yourself. If you're not prepared for the responsibility of the relationship, you don't need to be in one. If you're not prepared for a godly relationship or well on your way to being prepared, by entering into a relationship in often times where there is no accountability, where there is no structure, where there is no guidance, you're only setting yourself up for a fall. You're only setting yourself up to hinder the one that you're entering into the relationship with. What happens in these relationships is that you give yourself to this other person. You give, you give yourself to them mentally and emotionally and to some degree physically. It's inevitable, really. And you might not, you might not commit fornication, physical fornication with that person, but I mean, if you're spending time with them, you're giving yourself to them physically to some extent. And yet you don't, you don't even know if this is the person you're going to marry. You don't know if you're going to actually spend the rest of your life with this person. You don't know if you are ready to stand before God and commit to this one person till death do you part. For all you know, you're giving yourself to someone who is another man's wife or who is another woman's husband who will be someday. And you are receiving from them something that only belongs to their future spouse. Now, you might say that I'm just too old school. Right? Maybe I'm just outdated. I, I tell you, I certainly did not know this. I, I was not taught this growing up. So say what you will, but you cannot show me in God's word where that is his plan for relationships. That's just not how God designed society to function. But I can show you in his word where marriage is his plan. And I can also show you, sadly, 
instances where recreational dating has destroyed lives and destroyed Christian testimonies. Paul said, to avoid fornication, let every man and let every woman have their own spouse. That is where those desires will be satisfied. That is God's will for your life. And until you're ready for that, don't create any extra temptations in the meantime. I've talked to to more than a few young men who will come to me and tell me about some some girl, some girlfriend, and they will say, she's wonderful. I, I, I love her. I want to be with her. Great. That's fantastic. Go and talk to her father and form a plan and get things moving and make a plan to marry her. Oh, I, whoa, I'm not ready for that. Whoa, what, 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 do, you, what do you mean all this marriage talk? I'm, I know, I, I just want to date her. Well, here's the problem with that. She's, she doesn't belong to you. She belongs to her father and you don't have the right to date her. I'm not ready for marriage. I I can't lead a woman spiritually. I don't have a job. I I can't support her. I don't even have a car. (laughs) But yet you love her. And you, you, you say things to her. You give yourself to her. You receive things from her. And vice versa. Don't enter into such a relationship and give yourself to someone in a way that should only be given to your spouse. Because you want the privileges of a relationship when you're not ready for the responsibilities. If you find yourself in such a situation, I would encourage you to think seriously about it. Form, form a plan. Real, I mean, say, okay, is, is this what the Lord wants? If so, we need to be intentional about having a plan and doing this the way that God has said to do it. And if you realize that this is not what God wants for me, that this is not God's will, then you need to, to get out of that relationship. You're only opening yourself up to temptation. You're only opening yourself up to an opportunity to fall. And I know that that counsel is is primarily directed at singles. But the same principle applies to married people as well. It really does. Have your spouse and only your spouse. Again, you might think I'm just living in the Middle Ages, but do you realize that no case of adultery ever just fell out of the sky spontaneously? It begins with a look that leads to a conversation that escalates into adultery. I I don't carry on private conversations with women that are not my wife. I don't. If there is a lady in in the church or elsewhere that is seeking counsel, I am glad to help. I am glad to talk with you. I am glad to listen. I am glad to sit down and and work with you to the best that I can, but my wife will be present. Not because I think that women are are, crafty and out to get men. It's because I don't trust myself. Do you understand that? It's not a reflection on you. It's not a reflection on, on... that I just don't trust women. It's that I don't trust myself. And I know myself. I'm, I'm not ever going to be alone with a woman that's not my wife or not my mother. I'm just not going to do it. I was listening to one brother, and he was on a Q&A panel 
and they asked him this question about his son. His son was 16, 17 at the time. And they had heard him say previously that he does not allow his son to be alone with a single woman for any reason whatsoever. At all. No exceptions. And they said, don't, don't you think that's a little too extreme? I mean, don't you trust your son? And he said, absolutely not. I don't trust my son. He said, I don't trust his father. Why would I trust my son? Ladies, that harmless, innocent man that gives you a shoulder to cry on, he may lead you into sins that you never thought about committing against your husband. God's given you a husband to be the protector of your heart. God's given you a husband to share your emotional burdens with. God's given you a husband to lean on. Again, accuse me of legalism if you want to. But I guarantee you that it's a lot easier to have your own wife, to have your own husband, to not commit adultery when you don't open yourself up to unnecessary temptations. And if it means the world looking at you and saying, you're just a little weird, so be it. You realize Christians have been weird for the last 2,000 years? Do you think that this teaching was weird in the first century in a day where sexual immorality was rampant and Paul was... Teaching some of the things he taught in the book of 1 Corinthians. Holiness is more important than your reputation in society. What God thinks about you is more important than what man thinks about you. But again, this is not Paul's main argument. Okay, this is, this is extra. But I do believe that it's a valid and helpful application of this principle for our church, for where we're at, where a lot of us are at in our own personal lives. I think this speaks to us in that way. But I do want to return back to the Apostles' train of thought, picking up in verse 3. That, that's the solution. Okay, So total abstinence in marriage is not the solution. The solution is to let every man have his own wife, let every wife have her own husband. Now he's going to talk about, in verse 3, the service. The service in verse 3. Paul says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise, also the wife unto the husband. Again, this phrase, this due benevolence, this is referring to intimacy in marriage. That's what Paul's talking about. This is also an imperative. He's saying, give your spouse what is due them. Some translations render this, fulfill your duty to your spouse. And now this would sound, this would sound cold and contractual, right? If not for the word benevolence. What does benevolence mean? Kindness, compassion, generosity, understanding, affection. Give your spouse the kindness that you owe them, the the compassion that you owe them. It's really something that we shouldn't have to be commanded to do. In a healthy marriage, I don't have to command you, husband, love your wife, wife, love your husband. Sometimes the command is necessary for the sake of the marriage. I once knew of a man who committed adultery against his wife, infidelity. And the couple went to their pastor for counsel. And the pastor discovered, in speaking with the husband and wife, the wife had not been intimate with her husband in over a year. And that was not his decision. 
Now, I am not saying that the wife is in any way guilty of his sin. Okay? She is not the one that committed adultery. He committed adultery. He is guilty of that sin. But had they obeyed the command in verse 3, had they mutually rendered due benevolence to one another, the whole situation may have been avoided. Paul is giving us a lot of principles in this passage that are preventative. They're preventative. Now, everybody is so scared of counseling. Everybody's so scared to sit down, especially with a pastor, and open up and talk to them and share struggles. Do you realize how much more healthy it is to live above board? Do you realize how much more healthy it is to receive preventative instruction? than it is to go and try to fix something because you've been keeping something a secret for, in this couple's case, a year. They'd, they'd been having these marital struggles for over a year and the husband had never shared the struggles and the wife had never shared the struggles until the sin of adultery was committed and they were forced to deal with it. Paul is telling us that we are to be considerate of our spouse's temptations. We're to be considerate of... of how our husbands and wives are tempted as Christians. We are to see that God forbids total abstinence in marriage. He forbids it. It's not an option. He has commanded husbands and wives to be fully, conjugally engaged with one another. That's God's command. Understand, though, that like many things, okay, the Bible does not does not give you specific numbers. It's not giving you a, 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 a rubric that you can check a box off. That would be way too easy. And to impose those standards is to go beyond what is written. So that's not what I'm here to do today. These are situations that require open and honest communication between spouses. You must be willing to talk about these things. Because, see, us men... We have a tendency to assume we're doing our jobs and to assume everything is fine unless we're told otherwise. That's, our, that's just our natural assumption. And you women have a tendency to become upset with us and not tell us even though the problem is getting worse and worse. And so here we are thinking everything is fine. Here we are thinking everyone is happy. And here you are getting more and more bitter and angry. <laughs> Because we're ignorant and we don't know how to pick up on the cues that you give us. And because you're frustrated, because why doesn't he understand? Men, you need to be intentional about talking to your wife. Honey, I know you might think this is a stupid question, but are you happy with the state of our marriage? Honey, are you okay? Are you all right? Are there emotional or spiritual struggles that you're going through that I can help you with? It's what God has given you to me for. Am I fulfilling my God-given obligations as your husband? Some of us don't want to ask those questions because we're scared of what she might say. And ladies, sometimes you need to take the initiative and communicate. It's not that he doesn't care, it's that he doesn't know. Be intentional about loving one another. 
Don't, don't sit back and put your marriage on cruise control and just hope everything works out. Marriage is hard work. You need to work at it. Marriage is a mutual service that we are called to. We are called to give our spouse due benevolence. We are called to be proactive about loving them, caring for them, meeting their needs. Verse 4, I want you to see the submission. The submission. This is why there is due benevolence. Due benevolence means to have something owed to you. Why does a, why does a husband owe this to his wife? Why does a wife owe this to her husband? Verse 4, the wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. Likewise also, the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Why is there due benevolence? Because if you are married, you no longer have power over your own body. Marriage is a sweet surrender of yourself to the one God has called you to marry. When you enter into the marriage covenant, you are saying to your spouse, all that I have and all that I am, I give to you. I don't give it to anyone else. And listen, I don't keep any of it back for me. I'm giving it all to you. It's all yours. So much for my body, my choice. So much for being strong and independent. Notice how culturally revolutionary this was in the first century. You know, the first phrase here is, yeah, of course, the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. Well, of course, Paul. Yeah, we live in a patriarchal society. In his context, in his day and age, the Roman culture, uh, sex was the, the privilege of the man, but the duty of the wife. That's what she was there for. And if you were wealthy enough, you could go out and buy some concubines. So yeah, the, of course, the wife doesn't have power over her own body. I, the husband has authority over her. But that's not all Paul says. He continues and he says, and likewise, in the exact same manner, There is no difference in the exact same manner. The husband hath not power over his body, but the wife. There's mutuality here. There's equity here. This is godly gender equality right here. 2,000 years ahead of our culture, God understood something about the genders. But we still fail to recognize I know Christianity is a barbaric religion, right? That it oppresses women, it treats them like second-class citizens on and on. That's what they tell us, right? That's not what I see in verse 4. In fact, I see total equity. I see God honoring man and woman created in His image, equal in worth, equal in value. When it comes to redemption in Christ, there is no man, there is no woman. When it comes to functioning in society, man has his roles and his calling and woman has her roles and her calling. One is not inferior to the other. They are complementary in every way. There is total equality in verse 4. The truth is that Christianity actually has a very high view of women in light of how God created them. That's why in a lot of your Islamic cultures, they, they absolutely hate Christianity, because it liberates their women from oppressive Sharia law. It's actually 
the irony of ironies, it is our godless, pornographic, sensual culture that objectifies women and views them as a tool to satisfy men. That's the, the irony of feminism, really. We're liberating women from the oppressive bondage of Christianity. Liberating them to do what? Indecently expose themselves on social media so that countless men who are not their husband can satisfy their carnal desires? If that's your idea of women's rights, you might be the barbarian. The Bible says that women don't belong to men as some tool or some object. A woman belongs to a man. A wife belongs to a husband. And that husband, in the same way, belongs to his wife. Paul is light years ahead of society when it comes to gender equality. In both the culture of Paul's day and in ours, this is a stunning statement. Paul is saying there are mutual needs in a marriage, and there are mutual responsibilities for meeting those needs. No one party... In a marriage has unilateral authority over the intimacy of their relationship. No one party has the right to demand something against the desires of the other, and no one party has the right to completely withhold themselves. That's the equality we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And lastly, in verse 5, I want you to see the stipulations. The stipulations. Paul says, defraud ye not one the other. The original kind of carries the idea of stop defrauding, stop depriving. It implies they were doing that. There were some in the Corinthian church that were doing that. And Paul says, quit it. Stop defrauding your spouse. There is a sense in which depriving your spouse, their due benevolence, is committing fraud against them. You are stealing something from them that is rightfully theirs. You are keeping for yourself something that no longer belongs to you. If you are single, you have power over your own body. If you are married, you do not. When you enter into that marriage relationship, you give yourself to your spouse. So Paul says, quit defrauding one another, except, except. Now, Paul is going to lay down one exception. One exception when a period of abstinence in marriage is permissible. And he's not laying down an exception for us to defraud one another, okay? So we're not ever able to deprive or defraud. But there is one instance in which a period of abstinence in a marriage is permissible. And that is in order for husbands and wives to lawfully abstain from intimacy in their marriage... There are three stipulations in verse 5 that must be met. Okay. Stipulation number one, this all comes from verse 5. Number one, it must be by mutual consent. You see that? Except it be with consent. Mutual consent. No spouse has the right to make a unilateral decision to abstain for any length of time. In the Jewish custom... Husbands were allowed to inform their wife that they would no longer be having relations with them so that they could better give themselves to the study of the Torah and to prayer. Well, Paul turns this on its head. He says, 
man, you do not have that right to unilaterally make that decision apart from the consent of your wife. And wives, you don't have the authority to make that decision apart from the consent of your husband. Only when there is mutual consent can there be a prolonged period of abstinence. Second stipulation, it must only be for a time. Notice he says, except it be with consent for a time. In other words, this cannot be the indefinite policy of your marriage. You cannot say, we're going to abstain till whenever. There is nothing normal about a sexless marriage. In fact, there is something incredibly dysfunctional and even dangerous and even sinful about a sexless marriage. And I'm not talking about cases of physical handicap, right? When, when age or, or physical disability makes it impossible to engage. But when, people, when two people are married who are capable, indefinite abstinency is not the will of God. It must be for a limited period of time, a definite period of time. And thirdly, the third stipulation is that it must be for the purpose of giving yourself to fasting and prayer. Now, when Paul says this, he is not implying that a healthy marriage is a hindrance to prayer. We know that because what does he say in 1 Peter 3? He tells husbands, he says that if you don't dwell with your wife according to knowledge, your prayers will be hindered. You're not living harmoniously with your wife. So a healthy marriage is not a hindrance to prayer. However, there may be times in which you and your wife both decide that you want to abstain for the purpose of giving yourself fully to uninterrupted fasting and prayer. But it must be for that purpose. Those are the three stipulations. It must be with consent, it must be for a time, and it must be for fasting and prayer. You can't say, well, we're mad at each other, so we're going to take a month off. That's not, that's not what Paul is saying. It must be for fasting and prayer. And, and it must be for a limited time. Nobody can leave here today and say, well, you heard the preacher. We're going to spend the next three years in deep fasting and prayer. Because what does Paul say? Immediately after that, he says, and come together again. Come together again. Why? So you don't open yourself up to satanic temptations. That Satan tempts you not because of your incontinency. Incontinency, a lack of self-control. You can't keep it up, in other words, is what Paul's saying. It better be a short time because you can't keep it up. Abstinence in marriage can be very dangerous because Satan can exploit your deprivation and your struggles with self-control. A period of abstinence may bring you closer to God, but it may also bring you closer to Satan. See, God has so blessed marriage that husbands and wives help one another in their fight against temptation. They help one another. Oftentimes, spouses don't see how vital they are to their own spouse's purity. As individuals, we are the ones responsible for our purity before God, but second to that is your spouse. Your spouse. No one can help your spouse more in their fight against sexual impurity than you. This exception clause, I want you to understand, this is not a requirement. 
Paul says in verse 6, I speak this by permission, not of commandment. No one is required to have this period of abstinence. Paul is just saying, you may do it, but you are not required to do it. And if you, if you especially struggle in this area, I would probably advise you not to do it. Lest Satan tempt you because of your incontinency. Well, I know that this is a difficult subject. But I think you'll agree that it's a much needed subject. I've never heard a whole sermon on these verses. It's a topic that pastors neglect to address, yet it is one of the most common problems in every church. Ask any pastor, what issues do you see most in your congregation? And he will say, issues relating to sexual immorality and marital problems. We can't afford to avoid these issues just because they're awkward to talk about. This is real stuff for real people. That's who the Bible was written to, by the way. It was written to real people that struggle with sin, that live in the midst of this world, that go through the day-to-day functions of life. And I'm not preaching on these things because I think they are especially pressing, because I think that we especially need this more than other churches, or because of any specific issue in our congregation. I'm preaching on these things because I'm committed to expository preaching, and this is where we find ourselves in the text. Some of you have been here since we started, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we went verse by verse, all the way up through the book. And it's kind of amazed me at, uh, to see how large portions there are in the Word of God talking about very important issues that no one seems to spend much time preaching and thinking about and studying. I, I can guarantee you that if I was not committed to expository preaching, I would probably never preach a message on these verses. But yet God has put it in His Word. That means we need it. That means I need it. Let me close with a word of encouragement. We talked about due benevolence. We talked about service. We talked about submission. And though these are things that we are commanded to do, we should do them with the Spirit of Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean this. How does Christ serve you? Did he begrudgingly go to the cross only out of a sense of duty? Or did his love for you compel him to gladly and joyfully lay down his life for you? Jesus was not forced to die for you. I can say this, I can say this with full reverence. Jesus wanted to die for you. He wanted to. No one had to make him. This is the manner in which you should serve your spouse. The source of your obedience should spring from your love for the person that God has called you to live and die for. If you look at rendering due benevolence and you say, well, I guess I have to do this, you need to repent. That's not how Jesus looked at serving you. For the foundations of the world the inner Trinitarian council of redemption, when the Father laid out the plan to save a people for His own name, the Son did not say, well, if I have to. 
need to get your heart right before God, and you need to get your heart right towards your spouse, because it's the state of your heart that matters. What determines if you're rendering due benevolence? You know, what determines if you're fulfilling your duty? Well, it's not frequency or, or a number or an amount of time. Don't get caught up in numbers. The Bible does not give you a numerical standard. Your due benevolence is first and foremost rendered from the heart. Your actions will follow. If you love your wife, it will manifest in the way that you treat her. If you love your husband, it will manifest in the way that you love and respect him. And if, you're, if your marriage is stuck in a rut, I'm certainly not telling you to push through out of a sense of duty. Repent of this disobedience in your own heart. Ask God to help you to serve your spouse. If you failed in these areas, whether you're single and you failed, whether you're married and you failed, let me assure you there is forgiveness in Christ. Do not dwell on past mistakes. I said at the outset that Ask any believing married couple, and they'll tell you that there's mistakes that they have made and knowledge that they now have. Well, learn from that, but don't, don't dwell on that. Wherever you are, whether you are preparing for marriage, whether you are considering marriage, whether you are newly married, whether you've been married a while, wherever you are, look to Christ now. Apply what you know now. Do better going forward. So there's forgiveness in Christ for previous mistakes. And there's new grace and new mercy to help you not to make them again. Look to Christ. See how he serves his people gladly, cheerfully, and lovingly. Serve your spouse as Jesus serves his bride. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your goodness to us. And these are difficult things this morning. They're awkward things. I am uncomfortable even having to preach some of these things, Lord. But I know that they are part of your word, and I know that we need them. Help us to remember that you are the standard. Father, give us grace to love one another. For the husbands here, give them grace to love their wives. For the wives here, give them grace to love their husbands. For those who are single, who are perhaps considering a spouse, who are courting, Protect their hearts. Give them the determination to make godly decisions that will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant them repentance. Grant them grace. Grant them joy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.